It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. One thing that the guest today, Laurel, shared with me is this wonderful statement that I really resonate with, which is that in a society of comparison and fitting into a mold, we need more conversation around stepping outside the box to find joy. And I really noticed this about Laurel. Joy seems to be at the center of her mission and who doesn't want more joy in their life. I also really enjoyed (laughs) how she said that during our journey in school, many of us are missing key pieces of education and how to discover our purpose. And purpose is also really at the key of Laurel's work. And I think that is such an important thing to get into more, even though it seems like there are a lot of resources on purpose. I absolutely agree that we're not always very educated on that. And a lot of us are struggling to reclaim our excitement about the future, as Laurel also said. And some of us feel like we have an absence of vision. So I'm looking forward to exploring a lot of this with you, Laurel. And I'm so grateful that you came on the show to bring us all some more joy. Yeah, well, I appreciate you having me on. It's always so cool to know what people pull from what I do, like kind of some pieces of like what that sticks out to them. And the one that you're actually one of the first people that's ever recognized that joy is such a big part of why I do what I do. And it was because I had experienced what it felt like to have no joy for a long time. I think there's such a huge difference in being happy and knowing what happiness feels like. And there can be moments of happiness, even when you're going through rough things But I know what it feels like to have the absence of joy. And so when you find it again, you know what that feeling feels like, right? It's like, okay, I know now what I'm feeling and it's joy. It's a much different feeling than just happiness. That is a great thing to point out. I'm glad that you shared that because I would love to hear more. Like, Mm. what do you think of as happiness versus what do you think of joy? How do you kind of define the two? I think it can be different for a lot of people. So I'll kind of just explain how I've experienced that, where I think when you have an absence of joy in your life, you can still, like I said, have those moments where you're smiling and you're laughing, but there's something deep down that you know is just missing. And I think a lot of people experience that maybe when they are grieving a loss in their life, whether it be a loss of their journey, a physical loss of somebody actually losing something tangible like that. But being able to re- define that in your own life is when you can have that feeling of waking up excited each day. And especially too, when you do something that you know is within your purpose, you walk away feeling so energized, so much energy from that. And I think it's that's the difference with happiness and joy is that, like I said, you can have those moments where you're smiling and you're laughing, but you're not actually being filled up with that energy of knowing this is where my joy comes from. And I've felt the difference for sure. Kind of living on autopilot, I guess, is the best way to put it too. Yeah, I think a lot of us end up on autopilot at some point. And that also kind of brings me back to this thought process around education and how it really depends on how you're educated, right? Because there are some schools that are very kind of formulaic and there are some schools that feel really outside the box. And there are also some teachers in both systems that will really sway the experience and then it also depends on your household. I mean, there's so many factors that go into education, but isn't it interesting how it seems to me that there isn't a lot of focus on that level of joy and purpose. Maybe purpose is more kind of like an intention, but it's vague in that kids might think about what they're going to do when they grow up. And there seems to be a lot of cliches with that, right? Like the doctor or the fireman or the teacher or these kind of roles that we see as more like categories. And I've heard a lot of adults say things like, oh, if only I knew I could do that for work, I would have chosen that. 
And then there's also a lot of fears around creative lines of work, which I really feel like are is part of our purpose, right? Like there's something about creativity that brings it out of us, that it brings a lot of joy. But culturally, it seems like, at least in the past, maybe we're getting to a different stage of this now. Maybe our society is shifting. But for me growing up, it felt like you were kind of encouraged to do something creative as a hobby, but then find something else as your line of work to make money. And I would hear this all the time. I went to film school. So I, my parents were very encouraging. Some of my teachers in the last few years of high school were very encouraging about me being creative. But I still heard these messages from other people who would say, well, my parents would never let me do that. And even when I got to film school, I would hear things like, well, my parents don't really support me in studying this. They don't think I'm going to make money from this, especially like with actors. It was always about the money side of purpose. And I think that gets in our way a lot. And I'm curious how you feel about that when it comes to education and where the barriers to finding our purpose are with how we're trained as kids or how we're mentored. Well, I don't even know where to start. (laughs) This is one of those topics where it's like we could sit here for hours and talk about it. But it's things that have been kind of uncovered in the last couple of years of my adult life. But also, fortunately, because I grew up around a mom that very much had that thought process of doing what brings you joy, like your creativity hobby or seeking what that looked like and what the vision of your life looked like and finding what that happiness was, regardless of money or not. And I'm thankful for that because I really don't know that a lot of kids do grow up with that permission almost that you can do that. So not to knock any teachers, I know there's incredible teachers around and they're following a system that's been around for so long. But what I see, at least with my two-year-old son right now, he is so authentically himself that he knows what brings him joy right now. I don't know what he's going to want to be when he grows up or what his real true talents are or purpose or whatever that is. But somewhere along the way, we were that way. And then somewhere along the way, we got molded into this idea of, well, that's really cute. And you know, you're pretty good at that. But is that going to sustain this lifestyle? But the thing and what I challenge people to think about is that, yeah, when you were a kid, you were asked, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And most of us think of, well, what is our job going to be? But we're never asked those questions of what kind of a lifestyle do we want to live? What kind of people do we want to be around? What do we want to be remembered for? I mean, what do you do with yourself each day? We're never asking kids those questions. And that's where it takes that very authentic little human and turns them into this, I don't want to say not a robot by any means, but just turns them into this different thinking person of, I liked that when I was a kid, but then I was told somewhere along the way that I needed to shift my focus for it to be more realistic, right? And that's when people want so badly for their purpose and their joy to come from this job that they think makes sense, but it isn't always that way for people. And you know, there are those people that do find the joy and the purpose in being a doctor and being a firefighter, but then there's those people that their joy and their purpose is something completely different. They just tried to follow the same path. So what I hope with when I talk and what I share and kind of challenge people to do is to start changing those questions. And especially, like I said, now being a mom, like, how can I do better and be better for him? And even looking at some different schooling options for him right now, I think that's shifting too. I'm curious about that when you're deciding about the education you want to give to your son, what comes up for you? And I've heard a lot of mothers especially say it's really challenging to find a school that aligns with your vision for your children. Do you find that to be the case right now? Is it, it just seems like a lot of pros and cons or you have to let go of everything that there's hard to find anything that meets your perfect vision for education. Are you finding that to be true or are you finding that there are actually more and more options for you that maybe it's the opposite? Is it harder to pick one because there's so many great choices? Where are you at? I think it's going to become a lot more available because of the last couple of years. And, you know, I'm thankful I don't have a school age child to where I can really speak to that experience. But I think there's a lot more controversy happening in schools, unfortunately. And I think parents are starting to realize that they want to have a little bit more protection over how their kids are being taught and how they are supposedly being raised at school. There's a lot of arguments around that of that teachers and faculty thinking they should be raising these children instead of just kind of teaching them things. And so I'm seeing it becoming a lot more readily available. There's always been Montessori schools, which is more the focus of hands-on is the best way that I've understood. 
But there's actually a friend of ours or has become a friend of ours. He and his wife have created a school here in Oklahoma that's kind of a mix of homeschool, Montessori, very like flexible. I don't know what you would want to call it. So they have, of course, a mission statement and a better description than what I'm <laughs> explaining now. But we're going to go to an open house and kind of discover that first because as much as it would be cool for me to homeschool, I don't think I could teach my son everything he needs to know. But I do see some of those options coming up. And I see a lot more people exploring what it looks like to homeschool with some like-minded families as well. That's so neat. It's reminding me of my friend who lives in Austin, Texas. And when I was visiting her last year, she took me to the school her kids were at. And it was like, basically like a farm. Like these two people, I think it was a husband and wife team, kind of like you're describing created a school based on outdoor experiences. They had all these animals there. They had a tortoise. They had goats. They had like bunnies, I think, like all these creatures around. They had a mud pit where there was a day of, I don't know if it was the month or a few times a year, the kids were encouraged to go play in the mud and do all this enriching things. And their classrooms were all open air. So they like converted kind of almost like garage type units with these big open doors that they would have for the kids to be sheltered, but also exposed to the sun. And just like, I loved it. It made me want to go back to school (laughs) as a kid. There's something about spending time outside that gives you the sense of freedom and creativity and exploration. And just hearing you describe some of these things is making me think of that. And when I was going to school, I guess like especially in the younger end of things, like I thought about how fun it was to play on the playground and be at recess. And I think about the food that we ate. Like I don't really remember so much of the education. I remember like those more core human experiences, right? I think kids are at this time where they just want to explore, basically. And it's interesting that it seems rare that schools offer that. Like in my viewpoint of the school systems, it seems like they're indoors and they're structured and they've got all these rules, which are, I guess, helpful for kids' development as well. But I feel like growing up, I hated that stuff. Like I was like, oh no, we have to go do math. We have to like work on our handwriting. And I often wonder, is it important for us to be kind of forced into doing things we don't like? Or is it better in kind of like what I assume the Montessori experience to be like when you're describing this hands-on, maybe letting kids just kind of figure things out for themselves? What are you finding as the mother of a two-year-old in terms of what works for your son? Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you're saying letting them figure it out is so key. And it's even just little things I'm noticing and stopping myself on now that I feel like is kind of that Montessori approach is the whole independent play thing. I think there's this idea too with parents that we're supposed to always be entertaining or having these ideas for kids. But think about how we were when we were kids. I don't know exactly how old you are. I'm I'm 28. But when I was a kid, we didn't have all this screen time and these light up toys or whatever. We had to be creative. I would go out in the backyard with my mom's kitchen spices and would pretend I'm baking with dirt. And I just see that being lost along the way. And so it's almost like we're needing to simplify their experience for it to be better, which almost is kind of like the backward thought process, right? That we've done too much to allow them to just kind of figure it out and grow along the way. And it allows them to figure out what they're good at. And so when we're putting kids that learn in different ways, all in the same classroom, learning the exact same thing, of course, it's not going to make sense to kids, right? The same way as you. With math, I was like, it made me feel so dumb. I was like, I'm not good at school. It created this story where I was like, I'm not that smart. I'm not good at school. But the truth is, is I am smart at things that I'm better at. And there are things that are just not necessarily my zone of genius kind of stuff. So I think it's almost creating this lack of confidence too, instead of finding what it is for each kid that they're good at and just honing in on that and letting them expand on that and then figuring out. Because even now in this day and age, I mean, you can have a job at home and remote and these people that are living in vans and using their creativity to live this life. It's so possible now that I see how it's going to start shifting a lot where people are going to start allowing their kids a little bit more flexibility, potentially. I hope so. Yeah, it's so interesting. Looking at the different waves of parenting types, I actually, I read this book that gave me a lot of perspective on 
my parents' generation and how they were raised. And I would hear things like, oh, well, our parents never really knew what we were doing. There was like the boomers, I think, kind of fell into that realm of like their parents were caring, but maybe really strict. So they had to be kind of independent, but follow the rules. And then we had a wave of children, it seems like, where there was a lot of latchkey kids, like kids that their parents were so busy working that they weren't even around. And so the kids had to be super independent. Then there was a wave of, of parents that were kind of a little bit mix of both, where maybe one parent stayed home and one worked and more hands-on. And now it feels like something I'm hearing is parents tend to be super hands-on, to your point, where they would never let their kids just go and play without them knowing what they were doing. And I think that's an interesting thing to think of, too. How I was raised and where I grew up, it was considered to be very safe in my hometown. It was a small town. And so there weren't a lot of incidences of violence, like even robberies, like you could leave your door unlocked, your car unlocked, that sort of thing. So me and my friends could just do whatever we wanted all day long. It was like, as long as we kind of checked in with our parents, that was cool. But after school, maybe like three hours, I could disappear. My parents would just be totally comfortable. And I would go off with my friends and they wouldn't know what we were doing. But I would come home at a certain time, right? And I think that was really amazing because I did, to your point, have a lot of that flexibility to self-discover and explore. But that also opens up the possibility of danger, depending on where you live and the people that you're around. Like a lot of things can happen in three hours. And (laughs) now it seems like we're kind of in more of a realm of what people call helicopter parenting, where they know where their kids are at all times. We have tracking devices, we have cell phones, we have hyper-scheduled children. And I'm curious too about how do you feel about that and how is that shaping the way that you parent? And do you feel like, given that you're a newer parent with your son being about two years old, are things still in the helicopter parent mode? Are they shifting? What direction are they going in? And how are you approaching it? Oh, yes. The helicopter parent situation. (laughs) I only have two years of experience, of course, to speak to. And I try to never come from judgmental place by any means. But I grew up the same way, too, where you know, I'd ride my bike all around the neighborhood. My parents didn't have to worry about that because it was a very safe environment. And I remember even being like 12 and 13 babysitting other people's kids. And I'd be over at their house until midnight. And then I would just ride my bike back home up the street and didn't have cell phones at the time. It was just it was what it was. And now it's unfortunate that I wish there could be more of that. I do think, unfortunately, there is that level of safety that has shifted a bit. But then there's that other piece of like, do we really need to be tracking our kids constantly? And it's funny, I track my mom just because she's not old by any means, but she travels a lot alone. I'm like, I'm a helicopter parent to my parent. I'm like, this is terrible. But I realized with my son too, and something that I don't know that some people necessarily agreed with that I did is that my husband and I have actually traveled often in the two years of his life without him. And we've left him with grandparents and friends, all this kind of stuff. And I wanted to make a very strong effort of leaving him, not all the time, of course, but to the point where he understood that it was okay for us to not be with him and vice versa, that he could have his time alone, he can go and do his thing and trying to create that balance with him and that flexibility. And I had some friends that had kids right around the same age as me, and they've never traveled without their child yet. And it's fine. And it is what it is. But I knew I would get almost to the point where I was becoming a little bit too protective. I was like, I have to let him come into his own, even though he's so little. I mean, we left him at like three months. and Everyone was like, what? You're leaving him? And I was like, yeah, we're going to take a little weekend trip. It's good for us. It's good for him. And I think he's gotten better in terms of like the social skills with that, too. I'm seeing that a lot with little kids, hoping that creates a little bit of independence in him. And I really think he already is independent. So I don't know that we needed to worry too much about that. But I can tell it has helped him be confident going into new situations. Like he walks into a room and he is just he knows who he is and what he's bringing. (laughs) Yeah, it's so fascinating. I love that you're focused on independence and confidence because that does tie into our purpose. It's allowing children to figure things out for themselves, to have the confidence to do so, to not depend so much on what other people want for them. I'm a people pleaser. I have been most of my life. I'm trying to change that about myself. I don't really know if I can, to be honest. I feel like I go through these waves of being like very 
self-aware about people pleasing. Other times it just feels like it's happening without control. And I wonder too, how all of these little decisions we make as parents, as educators impact people because my parents seem to be very supportive of me, right? Like they were both me and my sister. It was like, whatever you want to do, like you enjoy doing this, go do it. They would support us financially with things, which I was so grateful for. They let us choose whatever careers we want, encourage the education. When my career path changed, they were completely fine with it. And I know that not every parent is like that. There are some that are very overbearing and very opinionated. And so it's interesting that even with supportive parents, I still was a people pleaser, right? So there are all these like subtle things that happen too in our education, the way that we're parented and the way that we parents kids is it's not just about letting them do things physically but it's also the emotional side of it and the messages we share with them and i imagine you're very intentional about the words that you say and do you think about that in terms of education too because when you have a child go to school you have no idea what they're going to hear from other people from teachers from other kids What is that like right now for you with how much intention you put into raising your son? It's something that my husband and I have actually talked a lot about is that we grew up in very different households, too, when it came to communicating as well, that we both did have very supportive parents as well. But sometimes even along the way with that, there was miscommunication in terms of like some conversations that maybe felt a little bit more uncomfortable or things because I know there's going to be things that he hears or things that are maybe new to him or confusing or whatever, and he's not going to know what to do with that. And I can't stop him from hearing those things or hearing different opinions or anything like that. But we talked about it actually recently of saying, we want to be parents to where he's never uncomfortable to come to us and discuss something because I can't protect him from what the world's going to show him and what he's going to see. And I can only protect him so much from that at home. But I want him to be able to come home and then that be a discussion where we can kind of figure out where we stand on that as a family. Because I think there are, I want him to decide his own opinions on a lot of things as well, but also kind of talk through those stuff. And I don't know how prepared I am for that. I mean, it also terrifies me because there's things too that amazing parents, but there were things that I realized as an adult, I'm like, oh, there was some stuff my parents did that kind of stuck with me and not in the best way. And it was not that they intentionally did that, of course. But I think all the time with my son, I'm like, man, what I just do, is that going to mess him up someday? (laughs) Like, I think about all the time of being so careful about that. And I don't think any parent can ever do it correctly. But I just want it to always be an open conversation of, especially with the emotional side, too, like you were talking about, is no emotion is off the table, no conversation is off the table. And that kind of shifting a bit, too. And we were talking, or you mentioned some different generational things that in itself has come a long, long way. Because I know my parents' parents, so grandparents and beyond, I feel like there was very, very little discussion on different topics or things outside of their opinion. So I want to shift that as much as I can. Yeah. Well, speaking of shifting, I want to shift over to you growing up. And a lot of things have shaped you and you've gone through transitions in terms of your passions and your purpose. And I believe you mentioned that you were working in the wedding industry. Is that right? So first of all, how did you get into that? What were you doing? How long were you passionate about weddings? Yeah, so I actually went to Oklahoma State University wanting to be a corporate event planner. And I knew always along the way as a kid, I knew that I was always the one that brought people together. I was very much a planner. I remember being a kid just like always wanting to plan slumber parties and like, can I plan your birthday party for you? Like, I just love being the glue sort of of a friend group. That's kind of always been my identity, if you will. So when I thought about going to college, and like I mentioned too, I did grow up with a mom that was very good about helping us create a vision for our life. So I thought, okay, well, what am I good at? And what do I really like? For some reason, corporate events was where my head went, right? Which I don't know where that came from. But I went to Oklahoma State. And along the way, halfway through college, I lost my dad to suicide. So this was the first time that my world really, really shifted. And after I lost my dad, I kind of lost my hope in creating a joyful future. You know, as we talked about at the beginning of this, that was really where I felt an absence of joy because that was the first time I'd experienced outside circumstances really drastically changing my life. And so I thought, well, that plan that I had had up until then, that's just not possibly going to happen because all these things are now changing. 
And that was where I was really living on autopilot for a while. And when I left college, I took my first job, which was terrible. It was the worst job for me to have. I'm very social and I worked alone. So I was traveling half of the month alone and then I was working from my apartment alone and I just had one roommate. And that's when I really started to realize I was lacking all joy in my life and really not feeling a whole lot of happiness either. And so I sat back down and this actually was at one of my mom's workshops that she was doing with a bunch of entrepreneurs about vision. And I was there just to support her. And I thought, okay, maybe I need to like really dive back into writing a vision, even though I don't really see much for my future in this moment. And what came back around was, well, you've always wanted to work events, but why not do weddings? Because those are a whole lot more fun than corporate events. They're not as black and white. They're a whole lot more fun. And so I got really involved in the wedding industry for like over four years. And what was funny is that I had no idea where to start because I was not working events, like I mentioned. And so there's this big magazine here in Oklahoma called Brides of Oklahoma. And it's like the Bible for weddings. Like when you get engaged, like somebody brings you this holy grail of wedding planning. And so I was flipping through this book and I started emailing these wedding venues and event planners just saying, hey, can I shadow? I just want to see what it's like to work weddings. And I got involved with this. Her title technically is like a luxury wedding planner. So I worked these insane weddings. And there was one actually that there was Rascal Flats there and Pink was there and Chris Stapleton. I'm like, this is incredible. So I worked weddings for like four years. And it was where I needed to be at the time. And that was really the first time that I actually started experiencing joy again, because I felt filled up. Like we talked about at the beginning that I left my job and was energized after working 15 hours. That's when you know that you were where you're supposed to be kind of a thing. So it was awesome, but life also shifts again too and uh, takes you away from that position as well. I want to come back around to your father. So just to clarify, you had already been working in this field before you lost your father or you lost your father and then you started doing this work? Yeah, so I was only two years into college. And so I was the summer before my junior year. And so I did, I picked a major that was, not as defined as it is now, actually, at the school. It was Hotel and Restaurant Administration, I think was like the exact title. It's now really cool where you can define like if you want to be in tourism, if you want to be in events, if you want to go to culinary school. But at the time, we just did all of the above. So I kind of got a little bit of a taste because it was a lot of outside of the classroom work, which I really loved that as we talked about the whole classroom (laughs) math and all that kind of stuff was not me. But we had to work a certain amount of hours. And so I was working some events in the college town and had a good idea of what it was going to look like. But when he passed, it just it took a huge shift. And I just did not know really what to do with myself at all. I imagine that's a pretty pivotal moment in in your college experience. Were you close to your father? And what was that like for you emotionally? Did you take time off? Like, How did you navigate losing someone? that crucial in your life. And I'd love to know a little bit more about your relationship with your dad too. Yeah, absolutely. So my dad and I were extremely close. I don't know if we've ever heard this and who knows how true this is, but there's always this like mother-son bond and then there's this like father-daughter bond, like kind of just that special, special little something. So it was the four of us. It was my mom, my dad, my brother and I, my older brother. And my dad and I definitely have that father-daughter bond. And he was that person when I was growing up that Instead of my mom, I would go to him for like gossip or boy help or whatever. My friends are like, you talk to your dad about that stuff? I'm like, yeah, my dad and I are just much more similar that way that he talked a lot like I do. And my mom and brother were a little bit more on the quieter side, just a lot more similarities. And my dad actually was an Oklahoma State alum. And so when I told him that I was planning to go to OSU from Colorado, he was psyched because my brother stayed in Colorado for college. And so when I got my OSU acceptance letter... He had it delivered to me with orange flowers and was like, I was like the golden child kind of a thing. (laughs) So that was a really cool bond. And he came down the as often as he could those first two years. And the thing about it, and this I think is a very big misconception sometimes about suicide is that there's these signs. And I don't know if this was me just not fully being present because I was away in college, but it came out of nowhere for me. So a lot of what I dealt with after he passed was trying to put together and make sense of anything. That was the biggest piece with so many questions and trying to understand how did it lead up or get to the point where this was happening. It was a lot of confusion. And I don't know that I handled it. I didn't handle it well. 
I didn't really know how to grieve. I don't know that anyone ever has a great idea of how to grieve, but I don't think I wanted to. And so I was very much in denial. And I stayed in Colorado, luckily, because it was summer. I stayed in Colorado for about a month with my mom and my brother, kind of taking care of some things and kind of questioned going back to college, to be honest. I didn't know if that was like the right thing to do. And I did decide to go back. And I actually lied to a few people about how my dad passed. It wasn't people that I ever thought I was going to see again, or it wasn't worth diving into. But I didn't really want that to be a part of my story. And so I went back and just kind of went back to the normalcy of college and didn't deal with it. It kind of wasn't a thing almost. I put it on the back burner, which I would not recommend. (laughs) Definitely not the best way of dealing is avoiding at all. So yeah, I had to realize what that was doing in my life and kind of come to terms with fact that it wasn't going to change. And that took me a while. Yeah, I bet. I mean, it's interesting. The more I learn about grief, the more complex it seems. And I guess like that kind of ties into what we were talking about earlier and that so much in our lives is not something that we can put into a little box with a bow on it and say, this is the right way to do it. And it's kind of like this idea of coloring outside the lines. Like, I don't know why our education systems are set up so linear and so defined because I think the older we get, we start to see like life is very complex and nuanced and something like grief, we even have like, what is it, the five stages of grief or something. I think I was hearing how even that is kind of, I don't know if made up is the right term, but not everybody goes through it that way. So I wonder if for you, did you feel like there was a right and a wrong way to grieve? And then also with your specific situation of how you lost your father, there are so many misconceptions around suicide. And Mm -hmm. it's in a very uncomfortable situation or topic for people to discuss. So I imagine for you, especially in college, where it's such a vulnerable, intense time for many of us, I don't blame you for lying to people because maybe you just didn't want to talk about it or maybe you didn't want people projecting their beliefs or their questions onto you when you were still navigating something so raw. And I also know part of your story is losing your brother just three years later. Is that right? Yeah. So yes, I did also lose my brother. It was almost three years to the month of my dad passing. A very, very different time in my life. And, you know, I do want to touch too, and I'll kind of dive into that piece and how it was a bit different. But the piece that you mentioned about grieving a right and wrong ways, the five stages, to be honest, I haven't even thought about the whole five stages thing until you'd mention it again, where I'm like, yeah, no, nobody can give you a guidebook. Nobody can have this blueprint of, okay, here's exactly how we're going to grieve because everyone loses people in different ways. People lose different relationships. There's different paths to it. I mean, there's so many different elements And there's that piece too of losing somebody to suicide that there's a lot that comes with it. That it's the best way to describe it is that if somebody's in a car accident, they died because they were in a car accident. Somebody dies by suicide, you think, what was all the things that happened leading up to it? And why was that their decision? And it's like a million questions going through your head where you're never going to have closure. That's the biggest piece about it. It's this this like ongoing question that nobody can really answer for you. So Trying to think of a good way to grieve or say there's a right or a wrong way is so hard because there's just not. And when my dad passed, that was the biggest thing for myself is that I thought that there was a way I should be doing it. And I had to learn to give myself a lot of grace. And I also realized too, another piece was that being in that time in my life, having a place to escape to being college, just coming back and being away from Colorado kind of pulled me away from the environment where I had to talk about it. Like I said, I lied, so I wasn't really talking to anyone about it. And my college friends were great, but they didn't bring it up if I didn't bring it up. And I wasn't. I wasn't talking about it. And so it wasn't until, honestly, the year after college that I started realizing I wasn't dealing with it at all. When this time came around, too, it was three years after my dad passed that I mentioned that I started to notice that there were some things going on with my brother. I was a bit more aware that he was struggling with anxiety and he was having some depression. And to be honest, I was very open with him about my concerns. I think because I was feeling almost guilty that I didn't see it with my dad. And so I was having these conversations with him, like, what is going on? You're scaring me. You're acting like dad. There was so much reassurance in it that I'm fine. I'm taking care of myself. He was going to counseling, all this kind of stuff. And he was in Arizona 
And I was in Oklahoma at the time. So again, I was away, literally in another state again, where I'm getting this phone call, letting me know that my brother's passed by suicide. And it was this whole other influx of emotions thinking, how in the world am I going through this again? How am I going to go through this again? I mean, how am I even going to be able to move forward? I mean, again, it's this massive confusion. Anyone that's gone through losing somebody to suicide, I'm sure can relate because it's like I said, there's just all a million questions. And I think that's the other piece that makes it hard to start grieving because you're not really even sure what to start grieving. There's so many different feelings happening. And I knew, though, that when my brother passed almost immediately that I had to do things differently or I was not going to be okay. Because with my dad and the mess that it was, I even noticed, too, there was one time after my dad passed, being in college, a lot of partying kind of a thing. I didn't think twice about drinking. And there was a night that I had way too much to drink. And I was with my now husband at the time. And I was very intoxicated. And I could not control myself. I was like uncontrollably sobbing. And my husband was like, well, my boyfriend at the time, my husband was like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Like, I think it was freaking him out. And it was like all of these emotions I was not dealing with came out when I was drinking. And the very next morning, thank God he ended up marrying me one day. I think I almost lost him at that point. I looked at him and I was like, I have got to get a grip on this. Like, I should not be drinking until I start to figure out what is happening because it wasn't like anything even triggered that. So when I lost my brother, I thought, okay, I need to like really tread lightly with this because I did not do that well last time. And I think being out of college almost two years at the time, I was a bit more mature and didn't have that environment anymore. But I definitely realized I was like, I should probably figure out how to really start taking care of myself and know how to move forward with this instead of waiting until it's too late kind of a thing. So it was, yeah, quite a journey. It's remarkable to me. I mean, I can't help but wonder, like, what would I do in this situation? We would never know, of course. I think that's part of the lesson, too, is there's truly no way of knowing how you would feel unless you were in the moment. And one point I think that you mentioned that's incredibly important is that everybody handles it differently. And there's so many different circumstances and nuances to this. And it just sounds like you have made the decision to reevaluate things. And I'm curious how much that shaped the next stage of your life. So at the time that your brother passed, were you still working in the wedding industry? And did you go through a shift because of that? Or where did the timing line up with these two big experiences in your life? Yeah. So fortunately, at the time, I was working at wedding industry. I think if I would have still been with that sales job that I first took right out of college, where there was zero joy there, it would have been a whole other story. So I was thankful I had that to go back to. And it, the people that I was working for were incredible and gave me you know as much time as I needed. And it was kind of a safe place to go back to where it was fun to work weddings again and to kind of have that environment. But Two big things that I noticed were that I had to really, really protect my energy when it came to who I was around. And I did not do that in college. I think mostly because, like I said, it was just an environment that I went back to and was just trying to keep it as normal as it was those first two years. But when you're in the adult world and you're not in college and there's different responsibilities and kind of just a different vibe happening, I started to notice that I had to make some really big shifts with family members that were a part of my life. And friends that were a part of my life. And even though I was working in the wedding industry too, I was doing multiple different things, kind of getting my exact footing on it. And I ended up trying doing more full-time with those people that were a bit more understanding than the other little side job that I had. And so even kind of shifting that a bit to being like, okay, I need to be extremely protective of where my energy is going right now because I didn't have a lot of it. I didn't have a lot to give. And so I needed to be around people that kind of realized that. And I talk a lot about this now with boundaries is something that I would never call myself an expert on it, but I've had to learn them a really hard way. (laughs) And especially even with family too, when I talk about this with people, they think, oh man, you've cut some family out. And that's the most dramatic situation, of course. But there were times where when you go through hard things or when you go through grief, you go through loss. I think people's true colors come out sometimes and both good and bad. There were people that really showed up for me that I did not think that were going to be those people. And there were some people that it was extremely hard to be around them. I couldn't do it anymore. And I started to physically realize that my body was reacting to even preparing to be around them, if that makes sense. Like, I don't know if you've ever experienced this too, but 
there are some family members that even if I think about being around them, I get extremely, extremely anxious because I feel like I have to keep them calm when I'm the one that's going through something. And I'm like, wow, I cannot do that. (laughs) Even with my brother's funeral, we did things a bit different than we did with my dad's because most traditional funerals, at least after they go through the ceremony or whatever it may be, there's that time where you can greet the family or talk to the family, whatever. When at my dad's service, I panicked. I literally panicked. I went into the bathroom and was like panicking because I just, I'm not a big hugger kind of a thing. So with my brother's service, we didn't do that. We had to leave. And there were some family that were so upset about that. And I'm like, it is just not about you at all in this time. And it's just surprising that comes out. But my point of this being is that I had to really protect my energy and be kind of strict in that. It's easier said than done, I would say. Yes. And I love that you brought that up because I think protecting our energy, setting those boundaries is really important when it comes to our happiness and our joy, which are these big themes for you and and not discussed often enough. I think when people talk about joy and happiness, it's so much about like what to do versus what not to do. And so understanding what you're going to say no to, understanding what makes you feel uncomfortable in a way that doesn't serve you, being willing and having the confidence to say to somebody, I'm setting a boundary because I need to. That's something I'm still learning. I think about this a lot because, again, the people-pleasing nature of myself, but also I feel like culturally, there many people are people-pleasers because we are raised in a way of putting ourselves second. I think women really struggle with this, especially as nurturing types or anyone who's in a more feminine role or identifies with more of a feminine role starts to take on this, let me take care of you first. Let me put my needs aside. I'm kind of curious how that shows up for you as a mother, because I imagine there's this interesting balance where you have to constantly say, okay, what are my needs? What are my son's needs? And what are my husband's needs, right? And sometimes they're going to conflict. I hear this all the time about sleep, right? (laughs) And something that I think about, like if I ever become a mom, like how would I handle like not getting a lot of sleep, which feels so important to me, but you putting that need of sleep aside in order to take care of somebody who's going through a stage where they need your support. So I know this is a big jump because losing your father and your brother, you were looking at through the lens of how to handle it for yourself and starting to learn these boundaries. And then you start to shift your lifestyle as you become married and then have a son. When did you marry your husband, by the way? Because you met in college. So you met him before your brother passed, it sounds like. Yes. So I actually met my husband six months after my dad had passed. So we met in college. And funny enough, I remember thinking this is the worst time for me to be dating anyone because I was a mess. And he was such a godsend. And what's funny enough, the first night that we ever hung out, I just dumped it all on him. And I'm very like upfront person. And I said to him, I said, listen, I just lost my dad to suicide. I think you're kind of aware of that we had some mutual friends. And I said, I just want you to know, I don't necessarily feel like I'm in a place to be dating anyone. And I said, if you don't want to call me tomorrow or never talk to me again, that is absolutely okay. Like I gave him permission because I felt like I just was not in a person that you would want to date at that point. And he's never left since then. (laughs) But he always jokes about that. He goes, you know, you just kind of gave it up front. And I said, I felt like that was fair to do at the time and just kind of filling you in on what all was to come. And so, yeah, meeting him six months after my dad had passed and he and my brother were very close. And so we unfortunately, but fortunately had each other to go through that with um, and him kind of experiencing it in a similar way. And I didn't know at the time, actually, when my brother passed, my husband had bought a ring and he was going to ask for my brother's permission. And so that was something that I didn't know for a long time and something that we kind of had to deal with. And we, this was another thing as well of kind of putting ourselves forward is that we got engaged the month after my brother had passed. And I think that was a bit confusing too for some people like, wait, you're about to start planning a wedding when you literally just had your brother's funeral. And it was one of those things though that that was what we needed to do for both of us and for my mom to being involved and saying that we need to celebrate this joyful moment and expanding our family and welcoming my husband into it and everything. And so, yeah, got engaged a month after my brother had passed and then got married almost a year later. So we've been married for almost four years now, but he came in at a rough time, but he's never left. And yeah, I definitely needed him a lot through those times. 
And how did you see yourself being shaped by this marriage and now becoming a mother? I mean, you've gone through now these, it's like, I almost see it like you're stepping up into another stage of your life over and over again. I mean, you've done so much of that in the past 10 years or so, right? So what was, did you see like a lot of shifts within yourself as became a wife and a mother? And how did that start to shift these boundaries that we were talking about and and your decisions around your needs versus other people's needs? Yeah. And it's interesting you say, I guess I've never thought of it that way that I've had to step up into different levels along the way and getting married and being a mom, especially, I think brought out a very protective nature about myself. I had created those boundaries for myself when it came to some family and some friends. But when you get married, you really want to protect your marriage as well. And bringing those two families together, there's different dynamics, there's different opinions, there's different things. And we had to figure out for us two, us being just the two of us at the time, what we wanted to protect with our marriage and certain things, even just an example of like Sundays are our family days. Like that is non-negotiable. Like that is our time together and that that is going to be what it is across the board. And it wasn't ever that there was conflicts with that. It was just that was what we put a stake in the ground, that that was our sacred time, if you will. And then, of course, when you become a parent, I think any parent can understand this, that you become extremely protective over your child. And if for my husband and I, too, it was like, okay, we're really becoming a family. Like we now have this tiny human that's ours. And, you know, in all honesty and vulnerability, there were many discussions, if you want to call it that, some arguments along the way of things that each of our family members wanted to do or had different opinions on what we were doing with our son. And so we, my husband and I had to openly talk about that of like, listen, I don't agree with that. And like, this is for us to decide and for us to kind of protect again what we want for our family. And it's taken, you know, almost two years now with my son being almost two for us realizing that it is okay to do that, especially with parents. It's hard because you are still kind of their child, but then you are now a parent yourself. And so we've kind of overcome that a bit for sure. And we are so thankful to have family close by and helpful. But there were just times that we had to put a stake in the ground and just saying, that's just not how we're going to do things. And it's a little uncomfortable at first, but then you kind of have to navigate that and just know that it's important for you to set that boundary early. I'm so impressed, for lack of a better word, by how you have, you feel like you just exude so much confidence and it ties back into one other word beyond joy, happiness, and hope, which are some keywords in your work, but vision is another big one for you. And it's just pretty remarkable, like how you speak about these things with that clarity. And to go back to this focus on purpose and what it means to have a vision for your life and the work that you're doing now to help others with that. How did you see your vision evolve as you went through all these different changes as a person? And we also didn't fully come back around to the shift you took out of the wedding industry. So maybe we can start there. So going back to your engagement, were you still working in the wedding industry then? Because that was shortly after your brother passed and then you got married I'm actually very curious about your actual marriage and how your wedding planning experience shaped that. Did you plan your own wedding? And then were you also simultaneously in a transition out of that industry? Yeah. So we can definitely start there too, because it was those couple of years were, yeah, a lot of big shifts, especially now looking back. I'm like, man, that was such a fun but crazy time. I did not plan my own wedding. I'm very good at delegating, actually, which has not always been a strong suit. But because I work wedding planners, I knew that they were going to take my vision and run with it. And I think at the time too, I was, of course, going through a lot of grief and healing and wanted it to be just a really fun and relaxed experience, which wedding planning is not always that way for a lot of people, which here's just a small wedding planning plug, always hire a coordinator. (laughs) There's so many times where it's like people want to do it themselves, which is amazing. And there are people who are good at that. But having them just kind of holding my hand and being those experts in it, even though I had worked with them, was amazing. And it was so nice that it could be just that where it was a joyful, super fun time. But at the time, you know, I was still working alongside them, planning it, kind of healing and also processing a lot of, I would say processing is the best word, but my brother's physical items and dealing with his condo at the time and stuff. So a lot of that was going on. So I stayed put career wise for a little while, still working alongside them and actually had a really 
slow year, which was good when it came to work, which was really nice. But right around 2019, so we got married at the end of 2018. And at the beginning of 2019, as I had mentioned too, I kind of went a different way when my brother passed that I talked a lot more openly about it. I started finding some more people near me and like a group that I was in, the people that had lost people in a certain way. And so I went about it differently in that aspect. And I started realizing there's something to this vulnerability thing, right? I was like, oh, like there are other people who are going through things like this is not just me. There's this loneliness aspect that I was almost holding on to. I was like allowing myself to be super lonely, which was not healthy and realizing I wasn't alone. And so I went about it in a different way. But at the beginning of 2019, I said to my mom, I always remember this. I said, we need to talk to more people about what we've been through without talking to more people. And she was like, what do you mean? I was like, we need to write a book. I said, we need to get our story on paper and we need to offer people some tangible things that have helped us the last couple of years. We're no experts, but we just want to offer something that people can use. Of course, not a blueprint of grief. It was just stuff that had helped us and and also for people helping other people through grief. That was incredibly important because a lot of people were like, well, we want to help you, but we don't know what to do. And so we decided to hire a ghostwriter. We're both decent writers, I would say, but it's really hard when it's that personal. So we hired a ghostwriter and we for about six months, every single Monday, met with her and talked through different chapters and edits and all that kind of stuff. And we had decided at the beginning of the year that we were going to launch the book November 11th, which was my brother's birthday, 11-11, which is a very special number. It's an angel number that I've come to learn. We decided we were going to launch the book on that day. And when the book came out, it was super cool. We had this really big launch party. We actually did three of them in Arizona, Colorado, and Oklahoma. And so we did kind of this like little book tour, all this kind of cool stuff. And I remember thinking, okay, this is awesome. I hope this book gets to the right people. And I'm just going to kind of let it go and do its thing. And I actually got asked to speak a month or two later after the book came out. And this woman reached out to me and she said, hey, I want you to speak on this virtual summit. And I want you to talk to young adults about what you've been through. And I thought, okay, so you want my mom and I to come on and talk about the book? She's like, no, I want you just to share your story. And I was like, okay. And so that was kind of the starting point of my speaking career. And I got off of that and I thought there was that feeling again of being incredibly energized because it went so well. I got off of that and I said to my husband, I said, I think I want to do that more. (laughs) He goes, okay. (laughs) So I started thinking, well, how can I turn this into my career? And so I stayed in the wedding industry for a little bit, kind of stayed put with where I was at, but started exploring what that looked like to speak. And so I decided actually right before my son was born that I was going to leave the wedding industry and just start speaking full time. And so it was a huge leap of faith. But again, it was kind of one of those things where I don't believe that I was lacking on living out my purpose in the wedding industry. I think that was where I was supposed to be at the time. But I think that my vision for my life and what I thought that that joyful purpose was and what my lifestyle looked like was taking a shift in what the actual title of it was, if that makes sense. There's a quote that is one of my favorite ones. It's write your vision in pen and your path in pencil. That on my vision, I knew that I wanted to be working this job that was joyful. And then I also wanted to help people. And at the time, that was weddings. That's what that looked like, right? But then when I was starting to see how that was shifting by speaking, it was still filling what I had written on my vision, but it was a different path of doing it. And so it was seeing that we don't have to put, again, put this box around exactly what that vision means, but allowing the path to kind of unfold for itself. That is such a great quote. (laughs) I love the visual of it. And I don't think I've ever heard that before. I am so grateful that you shared that. And I'm just so excited because, I mean, you're still new to all this. It's only been a few years that you've made this big shift. And of course, you're only seeing the tip of the iceberg, not because you're new, but because you started something right during a huge shift in the world with the pandemic. So as things are shaping in your life, they're shaping throughout. And I think the speaking opportunities are going to continue to expand, especially as as you can do more things in person. And that's just amazing. I love hearing how you've evolved. And again, it's only been like, what, eight years, 10 years, and that all of these major milestones and experiences have occurred. And I'm just sitting here like, can't wait to see what the next chapter is, (laughs) pun intended, because with the book and all, I mean, that in itself is a huge accomplishment. But then to like you see that as the beginning stages of something new for yourself is so beautiful. And 
Your story is so compelling on so many levels. I'm really grateful that you shared it. And I'll put the link to your book in the show notes for anyone who wants to go read it. What is it called? Tell us now. Yeah, it's called Keep Looking Up. And it's so on Amazon, you'll see actually a picture of my mom and I. So you can't miss it. (laughs) Amazing. Yes, I will link to Keep Looking Up in the show notes. So it's easy for anyone to find on Amazon or wherever else that you like to buy books. Is there an audiobook version of it? Yeah, so it's actually coming out on Audible April 1st. It's kind of a weird story. But yeah, when COVID happened, I'm not sure if that was the reason that Audible got affected. But we had our book waiting in the queue. And something happened. The guy that was helping us with this explained it. But long story short, it has taken this long from 2019 to get it onto Audible because they were really, really backlogged. So finally, on April 1st, it will be on Audible. Excellent. And this episode comes out afterwards. So by the time someone's listening, it'll already be out. So that'll also be available in the show notes if you want to hear it. So somebody else read it, not you. No, it was actually us. And you know, funny enough, so yeah, we got to read it, which was really cool. It took a minute. It was challenging. It was almost like acting. And what's crazy is I was very pregnant at the time. We recorded it in February of 2020, like like right before everything shut down in LA. Actually, we went, we came to LA to record it. And I was so pregnant. My son was like doing somersaults in my stomach because the booth is so confined. And that I was echoing so much that he was hearing my voice. And so I joked that he was listening to the book, but he was literally like rolling in my stomach. <laughs> it was pretty cool. Oh, that I mean, again, what a great, <laughs> what a great experience to have and all of the power that was in your body at that time and how your son has just been along for this journey in so many ways. It's just really, I'm so drawn into your life. (laughs) I I imagine (laughs) others have been too. So I'm thrilled that you have a book where people can dive in more. And what else are you working on right now? What is your current passion? Like right now, as we're in spring of 2022, what are you feeling most passionate and excited about? Yeah. So what's been super cool is that I actually got asked to speak at my alma mater, OSU, you know, where my dad went as well. I spoke there just a few weeks ago on March 1st. And she found me on Instagram was like, hey, I've heard your story about your book. I know you went to OSU, all this kind of stuff. And to be honest, at the time, I'd been speaking a lot more to the young adult category of like 25 to 35 ish. And so I thought, well, you know, okay, our college students going to be really receptive to this, which I don't know why that even crossed my mind. Because of course, they're trying to figure out what they're doing with their life. She wanted me to come in and talk about vision and just how it's shaped my life. And again, I left with that massive energized feeling. And I ended up having a call with her again this next week. And she wants me to come back in the fall and start working with some of her leadership teams. And so I'm starting to see how I'm going to be doing a lot more workshops at colleges, kind of helping students on that next journey of when they leave that very traditional setting of school. College across the board is somewhat traditional, I would say. And they're about to enter the adult life and how to navigate that. So I'm seeing how I'm shifting almost to a little bit younger audience than I've normally talked to and kind of start offering some more of those workshops because I do have a coaching program. But again, it's been mostly with people closer to my age. And I'm thinking, okay, I need to create a product now that's offered to college students. That's a little bit different, kind of a smaller take. So that's been sort of my next project and something that's organically come about. So I'm really excited about that. I'm excited about that too, because I feel like people at all different ages have opportunities to hone in on their passion, their purpose, and develop their vision, just like you said, because the path is constantly shifting. So even if you have that vision, you might need to rewrite it and modify it and erase parts of it. And I think that anyone can learn from that. And I'm just thrilled about your passion for helping other people's passion, because we need more people like you that do it in a way that feels open and fluid and accepting and just the grace in which that you guide people through things is so lovely. I could feel it before we even talk to each other, like just through email. I was like, you just have this power within you to make people feel good and bring out that joy. And I imagine that the listener feels that way too. So of course, I will link to the course that you offer in the show notes for anyone who wants to go explore that as well and your Instagram. And 
everything will be there for you. All the quotes, the transcripts, the video eventually. <laughs> I will say I'm a little behind on my videos right now, but eventually there'll be a video so that you can see Laurel's wonderful radiance on camera too. And thank you so much for being here. Yeah, I appreciate it. This has been awesome. And I've always said that I knew I either needed to do something with this, with my story and figure out what that purpose was behind it, or I was never going to be able to move forward. And so I'm thankful that I get to do this and to share and that there is a place that wants to talk about this, which I think is amazing. Absolutely. Happy to provide that for you. And for the listener, you can go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R to get everything that we've discussed today. If you go to the podcast section, you'll find it all there. If you scroll down to the bottom of the transcript, you will get all of Laurel's links and I hope that you reach out and connect with her. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 